Well, good morning again. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 15. While you're doing that, um, I just want to say I love crossing over the mountain coming from Roanoke over here. Uh, I find myself like just staring up at the, at the, at the peaks and looking for McAfee's Knob. Um, and probably because we cross right over the Appalachian Trail, as you guys know, right? Um, and uh, you guys know, you know the, the AT is a 2,200-mile hiking trail from Georgia up to Maine. Um, and it's one of my favorite parts about being in this part of the state is that we're right in the, right in the backyard of it. Um, every year, my, my boys and I spend three or four days backpacking it in different parts. And we just got back two weeks ago from being in uh, Mount Rogers, um, which is the southern part of, um, of the state, and we spent four days um, hiking around Mount Rogers and on top of Mount Rogers. Um, and as the highest place in Virginia, Mount Rogers has its own microclimate and distinct weather patterns. One, the night we were up there, uh, this, this ma major windstorm came through and, and it, we got pounded by rain. And when we woke up the next morning, uh, we find ourselves li literally in a cloud. Uh, it wasn't raining on us, we were just in a cloud Everything was just saturated with moisture. Um, and as you can imagine, when you're in this, 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 this atmosphere that's completely saturated with moisture, everything around you, yourself, your belongings, are going to be soaking wet. And so I got up that morning, with, it was like 40 degrees, um, went through my backpack, pulled out, went through my backpack, pulled out the little bag I had matches in to try to get a fire going because we needed warmth, we needed breakfast, I needed my hot tea. And uh, my matchbook was soggy. It was just damn. Even though I had it secure in a bag, in, an, in another bag, and under a rain fly, it was still damp. And I kept pulling matches out, and they were just, I could not get that spark. Uh, match after match, I finally just tossed it. But we found a lighter, fortunately, in another pack, and we were able to get that little spark, that little flame going, that got that, got that hopeful fire going, that gave us the warmth we needed. It gave us... Uh, the, the heat we needed to get, help us warm up the water for our oatmeal and our tea. Uh, and it's, it's amazing how things changed in that 40-degree morning, completely encased in a cloud when we got that fire going. Uh, and we put a pep in our step as we looked at the 13 or so miles we had to hike that day. Um, it's amazing what that little, that little flame or that little spark can do, right? Uh, but on the flip side, a little flame, a little spark like that one we had on Mount Rogers can cause much destruction too, Right? Um, in a crazy incident about four or five years ago, I believe, a man in Arizona let off a little, little firework at a gender reveal party for his wife. Uh, I don't know if it was pink or blue or what, but he let off this firework, and it set off a wildfire that scorched 47,000 acres of land, caused $8 million in damage. Um, and a more famous incident, 150 years ago, was the Great Chicago Fire, as you probably may have know, know about where a third of the city of Chicago went up in flames. Uh, 100,000 people became homeless instantly, and 300 people died because of most likely a single flame from a lantern that got kicked over or something. Uh, a little, something seemingly innocent and mundane, like a little flame, uh, can cause so much destruction. Something just like what we had on Mount Rogers that brought us comfort and, and, and it kind of helped us through our day can also do the exact opposite and bring us, and bring us much pain and destruction, even death, right? Uh, you know, and biblically, there's precedence for this. You know, in the book of James, uh, he compares the tongue to a small fire that can, that can cause a huge destructive blaze, right? He said it's also like a rudder on a ship. While it's one of the, sm the most small parts of a ship, 
It determines the course of the ship, and it can send it into safe harbor, or it can dash it against the rocks and destroy it. He writes in chapter 3, Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, it should not be. Friends, if we're not careful, our, our tongue can cause much pain and destruction, as I'm sure everyone here is aware of and has, has experienced, right? God's Word is full of teaching. It's full of stories that, that, that demonstrate the power of one's words. Uh, and today, though, I'd like for us just to focus on one small passage uh, as, we, as we consider God's standard for our speech and how we live our lives. Um, and so we're going to be flipping around a bit, so just a, just a heads up. We'll be looking at five or six passages, but we're going to spend most of our time in Psalm 15. Uh, before, before we read it, I'm going to, I'm going to pray real quickly. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. You're, you're, we're told that it's, it's sweeter than honey, and so we pray that as we, as we look into it today, that it would be sweet to us, to our ears, to our hearts. We, it also says it's finer than fine gold. So we pray that we would find value in it today, dear Lord. We pray that it would be a lamp to our feet and a light on our path. Pray that it would bring us to praise and thanksgiving for who you are and what you've done, but also to repentance and that we would turn to you, dear Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 15. Psalm 15, uh, and uh, we'll, I'll read the whole thing. <clears throat> o Lord, who shall sojourn in your tents? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friends, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So as we look at Psalm 15, we're going to mainly focus just probably on the first three verses today. Um, but if you're taking notes, I've got kind of three questions we're going to cover today. The first one is, uh, where is our destination? Where is our destination? The second one is, what is our dilemma? What is our dilemma? And thirdly, who's our deliverer? Who is our deliverer? So first, let's look at what Psalm 15 says about our destination. Or in other words, where should we want to go? Where should we want to be? Look in, look in the very first verse. O Lord, who, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your, on your holy hill? What is this, what's this asking? What's this Lord's tent that the writer is asking about? You know, as a backpacker, my first instinct is to think of a Coleman backpacking tent, you know, with sleeping bags in it up on top of Mount Rogers or on McAfee's Knob. Um, but if you, if, you're, if you read the Old Testament, it's, it's clear that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about a generic camping structure. Rather, he's talking about the tabernacle and later the temple. You know, when the Lord single-handedly rescued his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, 
He established a way to, to be able to meet with his people, that they could approach him rightly, that they could worship him, that they could be in his presence. Though they were wretchedly fallen, sinful, rebellious, he, being even though he was perfectly good, powerful, just, he set up this tent or tabernacle system as a place to meet them where they could safely approach him. And then they later built the temple. So as we read about the Lord's tent here in verse 1 of Psalm 15, we need to be aware that they're talking about the tabernacle, the temple, the place where God, where they could enter God's presence safely, where they could worship him as, their, as his people, where they could expect to meet him, where they expect to be with him. And likewise, in the second half of verse 2, when we see Holy Hill, we're not just talking about a majestic mountain like Catawba Mountain or, or Mount Rogers. We're talking about something else. You know, biblically, over and over again, God met with his people on a mountain or in high places. A lot of theologians think that that can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. They, they think that maybe the Garden of Eden was on a raised ground as a single river flew out and divided into four rivers as it went down. Uh, you know, it, later on, Abraham was told to go up on a mountain to sacrifice Isaac. And it was on top of that mountain and when he was acting in obedience that God met them and spared Isaac. Uh, we see when, when Moses uh, brought the people out of Egypt, when God led them out of Egypt, he brought them to the base of Mount Sinai. And it's on top of that mountain where Moses regularly met with God and they received, he received the law. Uh, but by the time of Psalm 15, the holy hill here, here is referring to Mount Zion, the highest point in ancient Jerusalem where the temple would be built. Uh, if, you're, if you're flipping, turn to Psalm 48. We, we, get a, uh, we can see Zion's importance and conveyed pretty clearly here in Psalm 48. Uh, Psalm 48, verses 1 through 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Do you guys see that in verse 1? We're told that the mountain or the hill is what? It's beautiful and the joy of all the earth. In verse 3, it's within our citadels that God has made himself known as a fortress. He makes himself known to them as their protector, as their refuge. He was right there in the midst of his people, the Israelites, at all times. It didn't stop there. Later on through Psalm 48, we see that you know, those outside of Israel and those at the ends of the earth came to witness to God's power and glory. We're going to do some more flipping. Flip to Micah 4. A little bit further back into the Old Testament. Micah 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 2. Micah 4, verses 1 through 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
Micah and other prophets like Isaiah saw a time when all the nations would be drawn to the temple of the holy hill and the word of God would go out and flourish into the world. All the peoples of the world would come to be in God's presence, not just the Israelites, but all the nations. So now look with me back in Psalm 15. As we talk about interacting with this presence of the Lord, we're not just talking about a passing by. We're not just talking about like catching a glimpse of it as you're going past it. What, what verbs are used there? Sojourn and dwell. Sojourn, which is used almost exclusively in the Old Testament as for the, for the outsiders, people who aren't from Israel, it's used to, as, a, as, as the word to bring them into the, the covenant community so that they can take, so they can be a part of the covenant community, even though they're not Israelites. And then we see dwell, which is pretty clear what that means. I mean, it's talking about coming to live on, to make your home, to make your, your dwelling on the holy hill. The psalmist is talking about a constant living right in the middle of God's presence. And as Christians, we see this ultimately accomplished at the end of the Bible. Look in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So on top of all this, what is God's aim with us for being in his presence? Ultimately, he will come down. He'll make his place among us and dwell with us or live with us. He'll wipe away every tear. Death will be no more sadness. Death itself will be put to death. How sweet will that be if you can imagine that? So the psalm in Psalm 15 is opening up by identifying this destination where we should want to be, where we should want to go as for God's people as being in his presence. And before we move on, like just, I want us to pause and think what that means. I mean, God, the creator of the universe, who spoke the world into existence, who's, ex- who's described as merciful and gracious and slow to anger, full of steadfast love, would have us in his presence. That, I hope the weight and the gravity of that, but also the joy and the wonder of that hits you this morning as we think about what that means. And with that in mind, this idea of what, that's what we should be aiming for, a whole host of questions emerge. Well, who qualifies to enjoy true fellowship, right? Who will get to be with him? Who will live continually in this life-giving, death-ending, joy-infusing, sadness-dispelling presence of the Lord? And with that in mind, it moves us to our second question. Well, what's, what's our dilemma? We're given pretty straightforward instructions here in Psalm 15. How do we enter God's presence? Well, the, these next two verses give us the standard by which we'd be measured by. Look in uh, verses 2 and 3. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right 
and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So friends, as we look at God's commands for us, we need to look at it just just like that, as God's commands for us. Um, What God would have us do to be able to dwell with him. Let's take this seriously and not cast it aside and come up with our own terms, our own terms, our own standards, or the or the world standards for how we would be in God's presence. Because um, after all, isn't that kind of what the builders of the Tower of Babel did? They they had this idea of, of reaching to the heavens on their own willpower, on their own achievement, and they end up being judged by God in the end. Now, our dwelling with the Lord to be in His presence must be on His terms. And here in Psalm 15, we have those terms set out for us. Look at the first half of verse 2. While he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Walking blamelessly, doing what is right. Here we have the the external happenings of one's life. You know, what happens in public, how we generally live our lives. Whenever I see that, it reminds me of Psalm 1.1. You know, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Here we have, we're we're talking about the blessed man who steps, his way of life is ordered in such a way that's opposed to the wicked. And likewise, it's similar to the very beginning of the book of Job. Job is described in the very first verses as blameless and upright. Biblically, this idea is conveyed of one having personal integrity as opposed to hypocrisy. So walking blamelessly and doing what is right here in Psalm 15, verse 1, means ordering your step, conducting your life in such a way that's above reproach. Living your life with integrity for all to see. Friends, is that something that speaks of you? Is walking blamelessly with uprightness something that you can identify with? Or do rumors or or scandals seem to follow you wherever you go? Would your family members, would your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, fellow church members, would they be able to identify certain public sins that seem to plague you, that follow you around? Next, let's look at the second half of verse 2 speaks truth in his heart. Speaks truth in his heart. You see what's going on here? We're moving from the external to the, to the internal, right? What's on display for the world to private internal matters of the heart. And so you see the psalmist is being clear. This isn't like a checklist, do's and don'ts. He's, he's showing us that this covers every aspect of your life, right? Uh, it's talking about things that incur in public, in full view for everyone, but also things that happen behind closed doors in private when you think that no one else is looking. So are you living your life in a way that's both externally and internally that would honor the Lord? Let's look in verse 3. We get, we get an added dimension. First we had pri- uh, public, the external. Then we had the internal, private. Look in verse 3. He who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now the writer has added a social dimension to this, right? If we just had verse 2, we could possibly maybe try to wiggle clear of any duty to take care of our neighbor, right? Or or doing right by them. But now in here in verse 3, it becomes clear we're going to be judged by how we treat others, right? Look at the first part of verse 3. Does not slander with his tongue. Or in other words, to use a dictionary to help us, he who does not speak badly about others to ruin their reputation, well, what, that, what does that look like? Well, the most obvious answer would be gossip, right? Do you engage in unflattering conversations behind someone's back that you would never say to them in front of their back or in front of them? <laughs> uh, or another slanderous way we can act 
is how we talk about our public elected officials, right? Do we speak slanderously about them? Even though in Romans 13, Paul tells us that they've been established by God. And in 2 Timothy, he tells us to pray for them while living a quiet and dignified life. Friends, can we say that we live that way? Remember the words from James from earlier. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Our words can do so much damage, friends. Just like a seemingly insignificant spark or firework like at a gender reveal party can destroy land or like the lantern at the Chicago, Great Chicago Fire killed hundreds of people, destroyed thousands of lives. So our words can and will hurt others. And in so doing, we also hurt ourselves. We condemn ourselves when we do something like that, unable to enter into the presence of the Lord. What's more, how do we speak to our loved ones behind closed doors? Are our words peppered with loving kindness and grace towards our spouses and children? Or are they spoiled with bitterness? Or how, do we, how do we talk to our children? Do we come down hard with them, exasperating them and provoking them to anger, as Paul warns us against in Ephesians? We must take guard on how our words are used. David's clear in the psalm that, this, that the way we speak, the words we choose, how we talk determines whether we are able to sojourn with the Lord, whether we are able to dwell with Him. What about the second part of verse 3 here in Psalm 15? Who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up, a, take up a, takes up a reproach against his friend. Who does no evil to his neighbor. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm free to do pe- evil to people who aren't my neighbor? Well, to answer that, it's, I think we should look at the Bible's definition of neighbor, probably. Uh, and the Bible gives a pretty clear explanation uh, in Luke chapter 10. You guys know the story. A lawyer approaches Jesus, right? Uh, and he, he asks about how to gain eternal life. Or to, to put it into the, the phrase we're using today, how to be able to dwell in the presence of the Lord. And Jesus says, we know the law. You must follow the law, which is summed up by the greatest commandment. To love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then the lawyer is like, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus goes on to tell one of the most famous stories probably of the Bible, probably his most famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? A man is walking along the road, and he's attacked and brutally beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. And two religious men come up to him, and people you would think would stop, and they continue on, and they ignore him, they pass him by. But a Samaritan comes and stops, sees a man in need, stops what he's doing, and he goes to him and takes care of him. He sacrifices his own time. He sacrifices his own comforts, his own resources. In some ways, you could say he sacrificed his own well-being to take care of this man. And through this story, it becomes clear who our neighbor is. Our neighbor is anyone that we come in contact with, regardless of their religious background, regardless of their race or ethnic background, regardless of the language they speak, regardless of the political candidate they support. Our neighbor is anyone and everyone we meet. So in verse 3 of Psalm 15, we're told the man who is allowed in the presence of God is he who does no evil to their neighbor. Or to phrase it positively, he who does good to their neighbor. So how do we shape up on this social end of things in verse 3 of Psalm 15? Do we avoid evil towards our neighbor? Do we do good to our neighbor? And not just our friends and relatives and fellow church members. Do we do good people we would normally be uncomfortable with? Do we do a good job of loving those in our community 
who we would normally wouldn't want to be around. Now, one of the main points of the story of the Good Samaritan is that even though the Samaritan and the Jewish communities were at the very least bitter rivals, if not enemies, the Good Samaritan was able to see his neighbor in need, stop what he was doing, come near to his neighbor, and make multiple sacrifices for the man in need. So if you go home after church and are enjoying a nice glass of sweet tea on your porch and you see a man in filthy rags walking down the road, how would you react? Or replace a man in rags with an Afghan woman carrying a Quran and wearing a head covering? Or replace her with a card-carrying Biden or Trump supporter, whatever your, whatever your preference is? How would you react? What would your response be? Or if you made it less dramatic, what about the people who actually do live on your street? How have you blessed them? Do they have physical, social, or spiritual needs that you can help with? I know that if you're like me, your answer probably won't be no, they don't have any needs. Your answer will probably be yes, they do have needs. Or, or in my case, sometimes, you know what, I don't even know if they have needs that I can help with. And if that's the case, it sets before us the good that needs to be done for the very neighbors on our street, in our neighborhoods. And just as I say these words, I'm struck by something that happened just this week uh, in my neighborhood. I was in my office working, and I looked out my window. My neighbor uh, was being carried away in an ambulance. And his wife was standing in the yard. She was distraught. Um, you could tell she was upset. Um, and as she stood there in her grasp while the ambulance pulled away, three or four neighbors walked up to her from down the street. And they hugged her. They comforted her. They, they talked to her. Uh, they, they took care of her in that moment, moment of distress. And then my jaw hit the floor when the neighbor right behind her, who was a very, very recent widower, came up with his mower and just started mowing the yard for her uh, as, she, as she was sitting there not knowing what to do. As I sat there and watched, <laughs> uh, they immediately took care, took, took care of her as her husband was carried away to the hospital. You know, ways of doing no evil, or to rephrase it, ways of doing good for our neighbor are so obvious they're so plain to see, but how evident are they in our lives? And so as this becomes painfully clear, so does the second point or, or the second question, what is our dilemma? We've been given this beautiful picture of being at home in the Lord and enjoying His glorious, life-giving presence at the opening of Psalm 15. Remember, sojourning in His tent, dwelling on His holy hill. But now, as we see God's standard to be able to be in His presence, to enter His presence, we see that we don't deserve to be in His presence. We don't have a right to approach Him on that holy hill. In fact, we fall flat on our faces before we even take the first step. Psalm 14, if you want to turn there real quickly, it's probably on the same page. Psalm 14, many think, is a companion psalm to Psalm 15. And it states it just, just brutally honestly in verse 3. They have all turned aside... Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So that's our dilemma. We aren't able to sojourn in the tent or dwell on God's holy hill. We've fallen well short. So what's our hope then? Well, that leads us to the third question. Who is our deliverer? Psalm 15 opens with a question of who will be able to enjoy God's presence on the holy hill? Who will be able to sojourn in his tents? And by verse, just by the very next verse, by verses 2 and 3, we see quite clearly that it ain't us. We realize that we don't have the right to. We are separated from Him, and we can't ascend the hill and be in His presence. Our sin, like the sin we pointed out in Psalm 15, just these 
very small examples would keep us from a perfectly good, a perfectly just, and a perfectly holy God. It makes us impossible to be with Him on our own. So we're stuck at the base of the holy hill, flat on our faces in shame. But then something interesting happens if you start to zoom out a little bit. If you zoom out of Psalm 15 a little bit. Um, first, I want to look at Psalm 2. If you want to turn there real quickly. Psalm 2. And this is, this is God talking. I'm going to look at verse, uh, just verses 6 and 7. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Do you see that? In verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Whereas Psalm 15 has God asking, what man can ascend the holy hill to be with the Lord? In Psalm 2, God isn't asking who will be there. God's declaring himself, I have put a man there. And who is this man? Who is this man who is without sin and able to ascend the holy hill? Who is this man who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor? Well, if we stop right there, we're left with this enormous, weighty question with no answer. But if we flip forward to the New Testament, we're given an answer as to who that man is. And you guys know it's, it's Jesus. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer explicitly points out that it's Jesus who ultimately fulfills what passages like Psalm 2 and Psalm 15 are longing for and pointing towards. So who shall dwell on God's holy hill? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who kept the covenants and the law perfectly and without fail. Jesus did Psalm 15 perfectly when we couldn't. Jesus walked blamelessly and did what was right. He spoke no slander with his tongue. He did no evil to his neighbor. In fact, he loved his neighbor fully and perfectly. And it wasn't that Jesus was just like a fortunate guy who was able to stay out of sin's way. Philippians 2 reminds us, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the last Adam, fully human, the perfect keeper of the covenant descended down from the high place, from the throne room of God, and he came out to live out, came down to live out Psalm 15 when we couldn't. But on top of that, as I just read in Philippians 2, he himself is God and is able to unite us through himself to the Father because of his perfect life and, going to, and for his going to the cross as a sacrifice for our failures, for our sins, for our rebellion. So Jesus comes down the hill and carries us back up to be able to dwell with the Lord. What's more, in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, we have the story of him clearing the, cleansing the temple. And he's challenged when he does that. And he says in, in two, John 2, verse 18, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then John gives us a little commentary after that and lets us know well, Jesus is talking about himself there. And the implications are pretty clear that Jesus becomes the replacement for the temple. It's to Jesus that we go to meet God. It's in Jesus where we're able to dwell with God. We don't have to travel to an ancient building 
on an obscure hill in a faraway land. We go to Jesus. You know, in the, in a, at the end of 2 Kings, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem. And he destroys Jerusalem. And he burns down the temple. And takes all the valuables. And takes thousands and thousands of Israelites captive back to Babylon. And it's in that um, setting that we get Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, Babylon, we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. Because they remembered the temple, the place where we were supposed to be able to be with God, who is our, who's going to be, his presence was going to be with us, and he would comfort us and be our refuge. It's been destroyed. What do we have now? Well, friends, we come to Jesus now. We don't have to worry about that temple on the faraway land. We, we come to Jesus. It's, our, our access to him is not hampered by the presence of a building somewhere that we have to get to. If, if Catawba Valley Baptist's building disappeared, you wouldn't be hampered from going to Jesus. You come to Jesus, and he'll be there. Guys, Jessica, could you come up in this? Psalm 15 reminds us that we can't access God on our own. We have no right to climb that holy hill. We trip up before we even complete the first step. We aren't able to walk blamelessly and live our lives in public without sin. We fail to speak truth in our hearts and live our lives privately in a way that God would approve. And we heap evil upon evil on our neighbors through our actions, through our words, through our inaction. But the good news is that we can come to Jesus. No merit of our own will get us up that holy hill and into the presence of God. It's the blood of Jesus and His alone that does that. And no clearer example can I think of than in Luke 23. As Jesus hangs on the cross between two criminals, one of them mocks Him, but the other one turns to Jesus and simply says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? He say, all right, well, show me your Sunday school attendance record or show me your record of tithing or can you recite the Ten Commandments for me? No, he doesn't say any of that, does he? Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The criminal's record stood for itself, right? He was being executed for his crimes, for his sins, and yet in turning to Jesus, he was taken up the holy hill to be in God's presence. A few minutes ago, I referred to Psalm 14 as a companion psalm to Psalm 15. Well, Psalm 16 is also considered in the same way a companion to, those, to that psalm. And in verse, verse 1 and 2, it says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And at the end of the psalm, David writes, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, as we close Psalm 15 today, let me just urge you to turn to Jesus. He's all you need. Turn from your sin, your failure to live out Psalm 15. Turn to Jesus, the one who perfectly already lived it out. In him you find the presence of God he will carry you up the holy hill. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It reminds us of your loving kindness, your steadfast love, your mercy, your goodness, your justice, your holiness. It also reminds us that we fall far, far, far short. 
Uh, we thank you that we, through the, mess, through the passage today, that we can turn to you through Jesus and that he will carry us up this hill, dear Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We pray as we, as we go about this week that you would remind us of our need to continually turn to him, rely on his merit, his character, his work, dear Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.